oh, uh, do you want to? Because I, it's beneath my dignity. I'm used to participating in big debates of the century. <laughs> so uh, at least I want two people to introduce me. You know, one at the uh, If it's only one, it's beneath my dignity. And uh, I must say, this will be a cynical attack on me. I must say that, that uh, uh, of course, if I get a monthly salary, yes, I'm generous enough to come here two, three times a year. No, my God, how generous I am. <laughs> here I almost, after, in a private talk, I uh, agreed with Jordan Peterson, who said, why not, I'm not ashamed to get money, and we know where we, where we understood each other. I, hope it, uh, I wonder if you would agree. When somebody say, but you care about money, this is not money, well, usually middle classes who feel guilty say this. All the real working class people that I know have, oh, you get a chance to get some money, grab it, do it, enjoy it, you know. This is typical middle class feeling guilty, you know, like you must suffer and so on. I talk too much. Do you have to introduce you? No, you, you don't have to, but... Uh, I'm happy to. Oh, uh, you are all too happy. She was happy. You are actually, happy. Actually, that thing you just said about uh, generosity is part of what I was going to say uh, in terms of what came through with your debate with Peterson. I know you don't want us to talk about oh, it. Oh, you again. No, no, no. But the point is that you did inflict Peterson on us, so we are allowed to, you know, having had to watch him because we were going to watch you anyway. Now we can make some comments about uh, how you came through. And but I, did, I didn't. Sorry to interrupt you. Didn't you get the joke? I made my half an hour speech totally without reference to him, totally unprepared, because I get from some spies the news that he will focus... This was his big mistake. He could have been much better. I even to told him afterwards, jokingly, you, don't, you know, because the myth is he has some mysterious advisors who read everything for him. Where were these ingenious advisors? I told him if we were to spare also your honorarium, he could have asked me, and, you know, I could have given him all my past scenes where I defend Trotsky terror and so on. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, please. No, I mean... I thought what came through in the in the debate was how incredibly generous you are, despite the fact that you spend like decades uh, telling us you are a monster and that uh, the only good neighbor is a dead neighbor and love my neighbor, no thanks. But uh, yeah. when it came to debating uh, uh, Peterson, you performed this uh, distinction you made between manners and political correctness, and you were spontaneously really well mannered. Yeah, but uh, didn't you know? Uh, Sorry again to interrupt. No, That's how interrupt. I confused him. He afterwards told me that after the introductory half an hour by me, and he confirmed this to me, his hands were shaking because he expected me, a hardline Marxist or whatever, and he was totally at a loss and so on, you know. Because, again, my point was not to fight him, just this, although I did in my half an hour go through all the points. My point was to give this basic message, you know. You can be reasonable, tolerant, but you can still be for communism, a radical leftist, and so on, and so on. And that was, I think, the way to do it 
there. No, in fact, when I was watching it, I was thinking... I didn't. I, I cannot stand my... I didn't watch it. You did, plan, you did plan it really well. I realized, actually, that in, your, you know, in the interview you gave to RT for your 70th birthday, one of the many oh other big God. events oh that happened God. since we last saw him. He said it doesn't look a day older, obviously. But that's uh, basically... You said that you would um, address the audience like uh, Kennedy did in the Nixon debate. And I thought it was so shrewd. I mean, you were generous, but also very shrewd. Almost like I was thinking about Themistocles when he, uh, in the Peloponnesian War, when he, he made sure Xerxes came and uh, fought the Greek, the outnumbered Greek <laughs> ships in the narrow straits of Salamis, even though the, the Persians were outnumbered. I mean, what Themistocles did, he sent his his slave yeah. the day before took Xerxes and say, I'm on your side, Mr. Cleese is actually a traitor, so what you need to do is go and attack the Greeks whilst they're still in Salamis, otherwise they run away. And Xerxes thought, oh, great, yeah, that's what I'm going to this do. This was the Peloponnesian so he went War. straight into the trap. This huh? was the Peloponnesian yes. War. And Themistocles was, didn't he change sides later? later At that uh, point, he, he was would. still Athenian. He would. <laughs> It's, yeah. a, it's a lesson for all of us. We have to be watching you. But at that point, it was a, a real ruse that sexist fellow. And I think that's what you did with Peterson. You brought him into the into your pattern, into your schedule. Yeah. And then and he didn't know what to do with that. And well, one of the stupidest things I think he said was that you are a mystery to him. I mean, like someone, you know, like someone who completely Well, it to be sarcastic, I should have... Snapped back, but you are unfortunately no mystery <laughs> for me. No, but I wanted to be polite, you know. The only question he had, by his own admission, is like, why don't you, um, why don't you make more money? You could be, if you drop the max. That's sincerely, the but you know, uh, yeah. sorry. No, just to explain, I really gave money, but it's not really charities. I hate charities. Charities are how the ultra-rich people justify their wealth, you know. It was, I already mentioned this here, and I checked it up because a day before Toronto, I was in Winnipeg, which is a country with many uh, Native Americans, and how are they called? Inuit, no Eskimos, so that I don't make a mistake. And I already told you here, I think, the numbers. It's a nightmare. Uh, a large percentage, more than half people from Native American and Inuit families, Children are taken from families, claiming that parents are uh, uh, drugged, uh, alcoholic, and so on. And then they are put in these, how do you call them, boarding school houses, where, now I'm quoting official Canadian government report, not some crazy local leftist, whatever. You know what is the sexual exploitation rate? How many of the boys and girls there in before even their teens, in five, six, eight years, 80%. It's absolute nightmare. So that was the common place of people that I saw there that also many of them are disappointed by Justin Trudeau now, claiming that, okay, he makes these big gestures, but to, with all the crucial points, like fracking, destroying nature, no problem, they are doing it, and so on and so on. He is just this absolutely same global capitalism with a, with a uh, slightly more human face. Please, I interrupted oh, no, you two one times. Last thing, I know, I'm not, uh, <laughs> one last thing I wanted to say that happened since we last saw you. Obviously, the book that he, he you talked uh, what was, what, you talked about, Sex and the Failed Absolute, and that's now in the works, is coming out in... Uh, 
Yeah, but September, it's only in September, it? yeah. Uh, but another thing that happened which actually underlines my point about Zizek's generosity, despite the fact <laughs> that he claims to be a monster. Uh, another thing that happened since we last saw you was the, the taking of Assange from Ecuador uh, embassy to uh, Belmash prison, which, as you know, is like the high security prison. It's called British Guanta- Guantanamo. The, the British Guantanamo, where people <laughs> are detained. And what I like about Zizek and very few of his friends, I mean, he, you know, it's easy to be generous to your friends when they're doing well or even when they are right. And the, good, the thing about Zizek is that he's continued to support yeah, uh, but, uh, Assange. Now I will make... I'm not going to go too far, but that's the truth. No, but now it's can I interrupt you for the third time? All good uh, things uh, come uh, in three. I've given up. I've given to up. tell you to, um, a small, sincere psychological confession. Since when I'm in London, it's my duty, but I have to lose half the day at least and to visit Assange. You know what was my first association when I heard on Hillary? You have to go to Belmarsh prison. I don't care how far. No, 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 no. My first association was, fine, now I don't have to visit him. No, <laughs> I'm so evil, so don't have doubts no, about, about my monstrosity. No, really, because they precisely put him in the faraway prison where we can't go and protest like we did when he yeah. was in... Uh, um, okay, so, yeah, and like, like Zizek himself said, really uh, the debate on Peterson, he did, <coughs> Zizek, his own came out, I don't, you know, that, yeah, as he yeah, actlessly yeah. called it. So, uh, I think that's more Zizek, his own today. No, no, no. Actually, no, no, I have no, no. a question even before you start, because ah. you finished the Peterson debate by saying how pessimistic you are about the, um, and you say that a lot, not just in the Peterson debate, uh, about how... Uh, you know, if you see a light at the end of the tunnel, it's I repeated my old joke. You did, you did, you always do, but that's fine. But the, the question is, you know, now looking at the abstract you've given for the next two talks, yeah. is that like, despite the fact that the future is already foreclosed, despite the fact that um, already we are in deep catastrophe, that we shouldn't lose nerve. So I can't really reconcile uh, how, how we might maintain our optimism, maintain our nerve, if there's no light at the end of the tunnel. But other than no, that... No, 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 I, I have... Anyway, I, I don't want talk. to repeat myself, but I have even a theoretical foundation, which I think I already... Did you notice, incidentally, that my classes here are very ecological, recycling, you know. I recycle all those here. And uh, I already developed this wonderful theory of... Uh, that uh, theorist of catastrophes, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, I often mentioned him, how when we are in a situation like today, we shouldn't simply say we have a choice and so on. We should say, no, there is fate. If things go on the way they go, it is apocalyptic. We are approaching a catastrophe, but uh, the nice lesson from predestination in religion and so on to other tendencies is that uh, precisely by accepting this as a fate that we are lost, it's sometimes strategically the only way to prevent it. Because you must just think a little bit more radically. It is, we don't only have ecological apocalypse, we have also obviously a, a, a digital apocalypse. I mean, what I learned now, the more I learned, the more I'm a pessimist there. How we are already incredibly totally controlled. You know in what sense? Uh, now I am writing a new book on neural link digital control, where uh, 
I will begin with this polemics between Fichte and Hegel, where Fichte has had this vision of total police state. Everybody is controlled and so on. And Hegel goes against this in a rather cheap way, that haha, then half the people's job would have been just to control others and so on and so on. But today, with, with the new supercomputers and digital media, Fichte won, in a sense. You don't need so many people and uh, the computers, which controllers, are getting so intelligent. Even if you are in a country like China, you can. Each citizen already has an individual file, and it works. I read in news a month or two ago that you know that patriotic standing that you get in China. Each citizen gets a, a couple of points, like if you give something to charity or whatever, you get some point if you, uh, if you are involved in any, if you are uh, uh, condemned or dissident activities, you lose points. This already works. In 2018, 30 million people were prohibited to buy plane and fast train tickets because their points were, their points were too low and so on. It can be done, and again, don't fall into this trap of just criticizing uh, China. It's all too comfortable for us to say, yeah, yeah, the Chinese, but with us, exactly the same things are happening. But let's not lose time. I want, nonetheless, I hope I will have, uh, let me first tell you what. It will disorder up than heaven. I left for the summer course, the last week of June, the big theory. I am now working on a book which is apropos Hegel's to one quarter of a millennium. 2000, next year, 2020, will be 250 years of Hegel's birth. It will be the Hegel year. So some publishers asked me, Bloomsbury here, Fischer in Germany, to do a short popular book, it will not turn as popular as I hope, on uh, on something on Hegel. And I, I've chosen something that I think uh, will be popular enough. Uh, you know, this idea, not just uh, this society of surveillance, everything is registered, but this direct uh, MM, mind-machine interface, or what Elon Musk calls in a popular way, Neuralink, all the prejudices that are there, the dangers, what will happen. It will be a very serious short book, which means for me now I'm in 150 pages. We will see what will be in a very systematic way. Precisely because Hegel didn't have any idea about it. How, what can a Hegelian view tell us about these very simple questions? If my mind, for example, these extremely naive questions, like Elon Musk makes this propaganda like, wouldn't it be wonderful? You have an intense sexual experience, you put in your brain and your friends can share in it. Well, I don't find this so fascinating, no, but, and this will be the only other, I wasn't able to develop it there fully, reference to the unfortunate Jordan Peterson debate, where when I was dealing with that, his famous lobster problem or whatever, no? My point was, uh, uh, 
uh, that uh, sex, human sexuality is like, if you were unfortunate enough to listen to the parts, that part was the original one, I really liked it. When I improvised about French cuisine, you know, which is very dialectical. Okay, French cuisine, now it's losing, but when I was young, it was the model of haute cuisine, of high refined eating. But if you look at it closely, most of their dishes are failure turned into success. They were making cheese, they got lazy, cheese got rotten, and they say, oh my God, let's sell this. They were making wine, something went wrong with fermentation, oh, we get some pain, you know, and so on. Practically all French dishes can be explained in this way. And typically, Jordan Peterson, okay, he didn't have time, didn't go into this because that's my point against his lobster, we are biologically predetermined, and so on and so on. But uh, there, listen, it wasn't a serious debate, and I don't blame him, we simply talked <laughs> beside each other. But what I wanted to make him see is that Yes, I accept all that stuff, how, my God, of course we are in some sense biologically predetermined. You maybe know the percentage better than me, but I think that if you take highly developed chimpanzees, I don't know which, our DNA is like 98, 99% the same. But I think here we must be dialectical. The point is, of course we are absolutely almost determined, but... Human spirit means that all these features remain operative. But they are, I'm sorry for this complex word, they are transfunctionalized into serving, getting caught nonetheless in a totally different symbolic logic. For example, and here I drew, I don't know if it worked there, the parallel with French cuisine. With all the similarity, and yes, we are sexually predetermined and so on, uh, I mean, our sexual life. But, for example, imagine something like courtly love, which is from the logic of biological mating and sexual reproduction, totally suicidal, meaningless. You make the most passionate love affair <coughs> of an encounter where you basically endlessly postpone the act. Or take the basic feature, the basic perversion of human sexuality. You take something which at best, if you take sexuality as something biologically determined that serves procreation, should have been just, you know, before we do it, bam, bam, I like to squeeze you, to touch you in this way, which should be just a tiny element of foreplay, but it can become the focus of life. So uh, that's, that's where I don't get it, and especially, uh, uh, you know, what I forget, what I forgot to tell him, it would have been a nice argument. He claims how nonetheless hierarchies are based on real competencies, no? Well, he attacks so much academia where he is isolated, no? And I wanted to ask him, at least he should agree that American and Canadian academia, your power there is definitely not based in real competence, you know. <laughs> no, it's simply, you know what he doesn't get? Competence is a socially determined dialectical category. For example, to succeed as a banker, 
Yes, you have to be competent, but competent for what? For cheating, for uh, these cheap strategic games, and so on and so on. I mean, uh, okay, let's not lose time there. Just to tell you, the big speculative event will be at the end of June, where I really prepared a detailed report. It's not just first what is, I will be very elementary, not just what is this idea of Neuralink, then it's simple implications, then I will go into all these new age theories, actualization of God, and so on. Something extremely perverse is happening now. Not in my sense, but in much more literal sense, materialist theology. They claim that if we scientifically succeed in connecting our brains, and we are then all immersed into one collective brain, that it's something like self-actualization of God. You even have, uh, uh, they call this singularity, Ray Kurzweil, you know, you even get uh, Hegelian partisans of singularity. And it's a wonderful naivety because, uh, you know, all big readings of Hegel usually go into or develop the idea that Hegel was basically right just she came too early. First you have the young Lukács, history on class consciousness, uh, whose idea is, yes, Hegel was right, reconciliation of substance subject, but he gave the idealized spiritual version because he didn't see that the reconciliation of historical collective subjectivity, proletariat and substance capital, will happen only in the communist revolution. So again, Hegel was too early. Then you get Fukuyama. Basically, it's, yes, Hegel was right, the end of history, but uh, he didn't see it that it's only with liberal democracy, no? a little bit too early. Now we get the last stupid version of this singularity. Hegel was right, the reconciliation of mind and matter, because the idea is this one. When we get immersed into this collective awareness, it's not only that our mind directly becomes social. It's that it's no longer our mind, it's in a way the self-awareness of the universe, of, of reality itself. So, you know, this speculative moment that all great mystics and even German idealists were after, that our finite mind perceives it that I'm here thinking about reality. But we cannot imagine this speculative point where, as Hegel put it, and many intelligent mystics, my awareness of reality or of God is self-awareness of God himself. Only through my self-awareness, God fully becomes God and so on. So you, but you know why I'm nonetheless fascinated by these cheap new age speculations about singularity. Because they do something very shocking in a way. They propose a concrete, brutal, scientific resolution to the most speculative problem. You know, when we think about our unity with God or whatever, you think about deep immersion, spiritual speculation, they said, no, 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 let me just wire your brain and you will be godlike. We will do it and so on. Then I will go into the problem of fall. Fall in the 
religious sense. Because you know what's the problem with this vision of singularity? All serious materialist theologies, as I call them, like Hegel and so on, <coughs> they knew, as I already repeated here a couple of times, they knew that, God, that uh, Hegel's solution is not we fall into our finite bodily existence, no, and then somehow magically through speculation we get out of it, no. Hegel's speculative term is again like French cuisine, you know. <laughs> that you discover that the fall itself, as Hegel puts it, please read it. You can download it on the web. Wonderful uh, passages on Christianity in Hegel's philosophy of religion. Where Hegel literally says that... Uh, the speculative insight is not we can overcome fall, but we can just see how fall in itself, if you take it seriously, is already its own overcoming. Because, as Hegel said in wonderful terms, the choice when you eat that apple and so on is not fall bad or good. Hegel says... Uh, fall means that human thinking as such spirit is evil. Because thinking means abstraction, distance, and so on. And it's at the same time good, in the sense that it's spirit and so on. As Hegel puts it literally, that's speculations. <laughs> fall is fall from goodness. But before fall you don't get goodness. You know, it's this basic dialectics, only through the fall you get what it is a fall from. You don't, you cannot, this is why, as Hegel puts it literally, if you undo the fall in paradise, in Hegel's simplified reading, they were animals, Adam and Eve, before. And as we know from intelligent sexology, theological ones, they, it's not that they were pure, they, sorry, permit me my, vulgarity, uh, as St. Augustine put it, Adam and Eve were fucking like crazy. But it wasn't sex. As St. Augustine puts it, uh, uh, for them, sex was like work. Raising, St. Augustine, raising the penis for the man was like when you raise a shovel or whatever when you work on the field. It was, you know, you didn't have this basic paradox of human sexuality, that it's the same time ultra-spontaneous, but you never control it, and so on. Okay, then I will go into some other wonderful uh, paradoxes that I discovered. If you want an intelligent book, I wonder if I uh, mention it here, on uh, evolutionary thought. My compatriot, he attacks me all the time, but in a friendly way and I often disagree with him, Adrian Johnston, he drew my attention to a really intelligent Darwinian biologist. Not, I'm an old guy, I was still too stigmatized by the earlier generation, Stephen Jay Gould and so on. Did you hear about Terence Deacon, Incomplete Nature? I'm not saying I all the time agree with him, but he's, uh, he's really... Sorry for this crazy expression, but I would say this mat uh, uh, idealist materialist. In the sense that in materialist terms, he tries to account for the rise of 
ideality itself in nature, he you, introduces this beautiful dialectical term, absentials, like absence, no? Something which is not there, but determines the identity of what is there. What is here, my God, this is Hegel, you can only understand by a reference through absentials. And, for example, already with living beings, it's clear. But already in so-called dead nature, take magnetism. If you spill all those little pieces of iron or what, they all tend towards a certain form. But this form is nowhere there. You cannot grasp the form. But it's an absential in the sense that form, this, I don't know, usually it's U-shape or whatever, how it works in magnetism, is an immaterial form which can only be deduced from as the point of reference, which is never fully achieved, but always failed by what effectively exists. And that's in wonderful speculations. He goes, uh, Terence Deacon, back to the very beginnings. How? Already in quantum physics you find this, in this idea of superposition of states and so on. That what is, is by, defined sorry, by what is not there. <coughs> up to, in a very intelligent way, up to the reference of theology, how, but he means it in a materialist way, how, some kind of divinity is the absence of a large part of human existence. God doesn't exist if we all, as we are now approaching closely to the moment when we will do it, if we destroy ourselves. Of course, there will be no God. But God is the absential of us humans and so on. It's really a pleasure to read a book like this. You know why? Because he's very open towards this ideal absential dimension. But think about it. I wonder if you will agree with this. Where I try to catch him is that nonetheless he is too much of a gestalt psychology formalist. His model of absential is a form. And he gives all these simple examples, you know this, a uh, 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 big mystery, now intelligent physicist, mechanic, have an idea how, you know, okay, I'm ashamed to mention it, so simple, you know when you have a, when you have in a desert sense, and wind is blowing, and although, and the same form, mountain or what, shifts and reproduces itself, although the, gra- uh, the pieces, grains of sand, are all the time different. But here also you have a certain ideality, as it were. No? She goes, what I like is that he is a complete materialist. That's what we should learn to do, I think. I'm losing time just to give you... Because my, uh, uh, my conclusion will be... Uh, uh, then I can give you the key that uh, what will singularity, by singularity mean our immersing into a collective brain, I'm, I finish with some daring. No, now I will make, I hope you will get it, fun of myself, no? I make there some, I'm ironically referring to debate of the century, I'm making some predictions of the century. No? <laughs> My idea is that usually you have... 
two readings of this, our entrance into a shared intelligence and so on, either for traditional humanists it will be a total catastrophe in the sense that we lose our singular individuality, we became like ants and so on, collect, we lose it, or the same shit but in different packing, some higher mystical experience and so on. My more refined thesis, I hope so, is that, uh, of course, the, that the subject will survive, but as this pure, absential, abstract Lacanian subject, in the sense that even, let's say, if I participate in a collective mind, all my thoughts, all the content of my mind, I know they are shared. But the pure form of me is still there. And another thing I will try to prove using old jokes that you all know, but we'll go very much in detail, using, yes, those who, of you who know my work will just laugh, you know, repeating old jokes. I think I already improvised on these ones. That this, okay, I'm ashamed, sorry, sorry, Ninochka joke, you know, coffee without milk, coffee without... My thesis will be that uh, for Lacan, the unconscious has purely this virtual negative status. Like, co you know the joke, no? Coffee without milk is not the same as coffee without cream. The unconscious is not some deep substance and so on. The unconscious is this negative virtual dimension. And again, I'm not bluffing now. If some of you, I was, I'm all the time asking people this. I think, from reading quite some texts on this, that uh, digital space cannot cover this dimension. They can follow all our content, blah, blah, whatever you want. But I'm asking my friends who pretend at least to know this. Can a digital machine get the difference, because it's the same shitty coffee, between plain coffee, coffee without milk, and coffee without cream? Can they get hold of this purely virtual negative dimension. So my conclusion will be a pretty Lacanian one, that uh, uh, what will still elude this collective mind is precisely pure subject of the unconscious, subject in this unconscious virtual dimension. But I made another pessimist prediction, double prediction. First, that even with regard to the content, you know who's, this may surprise you because I'm a barbarian, but lately I read uh, Beckett, uh, Unnameable. If you read it, you know, it's not just the unnameable, which is, and I was so glad to discover, you know which was Beckett's model for unnameable? It's Cartesian Cogito. Beckett's model was this one, and I think this is maybe what will happen if we enter singularity. Beckett says somewhere, uh, Descartes has this pure cogito, you don't know if it's a vision, hallucination, dream, then, fuck him, God intervenes, you can distinguish truth, falsity, reality. But Beckett's dream was, what we imagine a cogito, 
prior to finding reference or firm foundation in the big other, Cogitovich remains in this pure hallucination. And even at this level, I hope I will pronounce the name correctly, with Cogito, uh, no, in Beckett, the un, Beckett in The Unnameable, has then two incarnations. I will pronounce it correctly, I don't know. Mahud and Worm. Mahud is this, like, collective spiritual entity, Worm is the other inertia, and so on. So I do make... I do make some predictions and so on and so on. I hope you will find this amusing, but this comes afterwards. So now, uh, disorder under heaven. Yes, let's return to this. Uh, I will not talk generalities which you all know and so on. I'm afraid, because of my illness, maybe there will be some, a little bit too much of ecology in what I will talk about today in the cynical way of recycling my old thoughts and so on. But I want to systematically develop some things because uh, uh, my basic idea about disorder under heaven, and this would be the answer to this, uh, you know, I, I describe to you disorder under heaven, but then you know Mao gets on, the situation is excellent, you know. But I think it's better not to talk too much about how the situation is excellent. That preach despair and you will... And you, you know, as you probably know, I am obsessed with learning from the enemies. You know from whom we, sh we should learn? How our enemies, anti-communists, won the Cold War. You are too young, but I remember it, when there was that Helsinki Human Rights Agreement and so on, all the time the West was saying, we are already lost, we capitulated to the Soviets and so on and so on. It was a model of this strategy, act as if everything is already lost, but mobilize, and at the end you win. In this sense also, I will try to develop how to annoy you a little bit. I think the left, I think I already even mentioned this here, that we should learn from Trump. Well, I admire Trump, I'm repeating myself, I know, how what he does is something ingenious. He doesn't directly, he also does, but his main strategy is not to break the laws directly. But every law regulation always implies a whole texture of implicit conditions, customs, how do you do it when. She brutally cheats there. For example, his proclaiming state of emergency. Of course, people exploded. Wait a minute. This is meant not if 200 Mexicans or Salvadorians are approaching. This is meant for a big catastrophe. He misused it. I would say, fine, he set a precedent. And some right-wingers opposed Trump, they got it. They said, wait a minute, what if we get some left democratic president and he will do something reasonable? He will say, wait a minute, let's proclaim national emergency for global warming and so on. You know, learn from Trump. Okay, now work, finally. Uh, I will come back to Trump here because I will try precisely to develop in which sense this obsession with Trump is, in the strict Freudian sense, fetishist, that Trump is our fetish. In what sense? 
Now, fetish of left liberals who don't want to go more to the end into socialism, class struggle, and so on. Because my idea is this one. You know this rather naive, although it's in Freud more complex, theory of fetishism that, if you find it ridiculous, I'm sorry, but be, just follow the logic. Freud's idea is that fetish is an object, the last thing a boy sees before he discovers that the girl doesn't have a penis, no? That's why fetish, when you undress or the girl undresses herself, you see feet, hair, and so on, the last thing you see. I think, that's my reading, Trump is the last thing left liberal sees before he sees a class struggle. You know, you have this obsession, fascism, yeah, 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 just, and then you are in this comfortable opposition, you know, we good liberals against this dangerous threat, but you never ask the question, which is the question of the class struggle. How comes that, how comes that Trump got so many workers' votes and so on and so on, because the left liberals neglected Okay, I still call it class struggle and so on, no? So when Jordan Peterson was asking me, but uh, how stupid is Communist Manifesto? Where do you see class struggle? I didn't want to press that line. My answer would have been, sorry, but Trump's electoral victory is the proof of class struggle, no? Of how the right-wingers... Okay, let me now go a little bit into... Don't be afraid, I will not just be associating around. You will get a little bit of theory. Uh, I will repeat an old story, but I will give to it a different twist, which, because I was in Toronto, the idea came to me in Toronto, because it's Margaret Atwood, uh, her handmaid's tale, whom I want to criticize now even more. Uh, you remember, I distinctly remember, I was telling, I don't know if the same people were here, about uh, uh, Saint, uh, Thomas Aquinas in Summa Theologica, draws this conclusion that those in heaven will also be able to see the suffering of the poor in hell. And my idea was that what Aquinas was not ready to confront was the fact that, to put it in brutally simplified terms, heaven must be rather boring. And that, you know, I imagine this scene, you are in heaven, but okay, you get bored, and then, from time to time, an angel says, Ah, oh, you are bored here. Let me show you how miserable life is in hell. And they say, Yeah, 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 I don't want to. No. But the serious lesson from this is, is do not our news, average news on TV, function exactly in the same way. Are you bored in our so-called developed societies? You take a look at the news, oh my God, Yemen, Somalia, and so on, all the horrors there in hell, and it makes you feel good. Now I will go to, uh, to uh, why, only now I discovered, because again, in Toronto, speaking with some friends, and ah, the last joke on Peterson, I was too tired. You know what, what, what my friends wanted to do there? You followed all those lobsters debates, no? My friends discovered there the most famous lobster restaurant in Toronto. <laughs> the idea was to go there. 
was too tired, and I hate lobsters, but that's another thing. No, so, uh, you know Handmaid's Tale, maybe you saw, no? It's not only what I already, I know, improvised about here. That's my standard criticism. That this fascination with this... Uh, 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 dystopian society, religious fundamentalists in power there and so on, it comes uncannily close to some kind of fascination, you know. I wonder how did you react, but first me, then I thought I'm a pervert. No, I discovered all my friends reacted like, yes, yes, it's horrible, how the fate of women in, in that Republic of Gilead, the universe of... But secretly you, in, you enjoy it. Oh my God, you just look for all the details, how the women are screwed there, you know. Oh, they can't read this, that. But it's not just this. I discovered something else. Now come to the new point. That uh, Handmaid's Tale is the best example of what Frederick Jameson called nostalgia for the present. The basic message of the book is to make you feel good about what nice society we live in. Because all the time, the book is written so that you feel nostalgia, oh my God, what a nice, permissive society. This is the past for the heroes of the book. But for us, it's the present. Which is why the book never raises the question of, but... If we live in such a perfect society, how comes then that fundamentalists took over? What is wrong? No, it's all this nostalgia for the present, and isn't this ideology at its purest? It paints the world of horror, fundamentalism and so on, to make you feel good in exactly the society in which we live. This is why, in my communist KGB style, I ask my friends in Toronto, how does she work, uh, Margaret Atwood, function socially? And they told me all the same story. She's strictly part of this liberal establishment. The moment you step a little bit too much towards, uh, towards the left, they don't want it. So again, uh, uh, this is... You see, this is ideology maybe at its most dangerous. Books like Handmaid's Tale, because you are deeply morally satisfied. Oh my God, I read that book. I'm horrified about uh, fundamentalism and so on and so on. But it's all one big apology for the societies in which we live. That's my first point of how ideology functions today. I think... This is almost the universal formula of ideology today. Ideology never perceives itself as ideology. Ideology is most efficient when it presents itself as non-ideology horrified at another ideology. Oh my God, we are not that crazy ideology. We are whatever we are. This is ideology today. So, another point. Uh, this is why... Today, and I remember Jacqueline Rose once proposed this formula that what Lacan calls university discourse is this new totalitarian, scientific, expert discourse. This is for me today maybe even the predominant form of ideology today. This is ideology which exploded in 
1990s with the fall of communism. It is. We got rid of big ideological projects. Now we have to be pragmatic. We know economic expertise and so on and so on. So, repeating a couple of my old points, let me now go into this uh, topic of expert knowledge, ideology today. Sorry for some repetitions. But... uh, At the end of this line, I will arrive at the title of today's talk, which is Antigone Toxic Masculinity. Again, I I already talked about this here. So let me begin with an old story of mine. In the fall of 1913, Lenin wrote a couple of letters to Maxim Gorky, the writer, deeply disturbed by Gorky's support of the humanist ideology of the so-called Bogograditelstvo, construction of God, Lenin implied that Gorky succumbed to this deviation because of his bad nerves. And it's an incredible exchange of letters where Gorky says, maybe we should support this idea, which is incidentally a typical orthodox Christian idea, of men... The orthodox formula, which I hate, is that God became man so that we men could become like God. And so this idea of Bogograditelstvo, you forget God, but we men through constant work can elevate ourselves to divinity and so on and so on. And uh, Lenin is shocked by this. But, and this is not a nice Lenin for me, he doesn't explode at Gorky, by ideological criticism, you are a victim of religious indoctrination, shame on you. No, Lenin, it's incredible. Look, Gorky writes him a letter on construction of God. Lenin's answer, I quote, Dear Alexei Maximovich, Gorky, what are you doing then? Really, it's terrible. Why are you doing this? It's painful. Take care of yourself more seriously. Really so that you will be able to travel in winter without catching cold and visit best specialists in Switzerland and so on. What shocked me so much is that confronted with this, Lenin's reaction is purely medical. Gorky got crazy, nothing to do with ideological confusion, it must be a physical illness. It should be treated as such. And although... uh, uh, And it's so nice that he has, even in this letter, a cynical stab at at, uh, Bolshevik. Because then Lenin writes, please go to doctors, but not to Bolshevik doctors, they're stupid. Go to serious German nerve specialists and so on and so on. Why I'm saying this? Because I've written about it, maybe you know, that this is not yet Stalinism. This is brutal objectivizing Leninism. Stalinism does a step more. Stalinism resubjectivizes the situation. In Stalinism, you are subjectively guilty. Again. But uh, I want to say something more. That uh, recently in China, the same ideology exploded. Did you read it? Did Guardian write about it? I'm not sure. Although I don't trust Guardian. the, the Chinese now try to justify their mass persecution of so-called Uyghurs, Muslims. And I didn't know it. 
They justify it in strictly same medical terms, that this should be treated as a collective disease, that their concentration camps are not political camps, are big medical establishments, and that it's a, an illness, and there is always a problem of falling back into it, and so on and so on. Okay, I will not go into it uh, 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 just at how this is how, through this, you are arguing ideologically. And uh, this is the most horrible ideology that, they do, that you get this type of objectivizing uh, almost medical treatment of an answer. Now, why am I talking about this? We know all this. Because I claim that it's easy to make fun of, yes, Bolshevik totalitarians, yes, Stalinism, because, you know, I often refer to this. In the 60s, in so-called, it was so-called Sherbsky Institute in Moscow in the 70s, which is even now thriving, the same doctors, they proclaimed, it was big news when I was young in the early 70s, that they discovered the virus for dissidents, no? And they reduce dissidents to some megalomaniac mind. You think you know better than society what? And of course, uh, they immediately medicalized it. They developed drugs to fight. It was a medical problem, not, a, not even a problem of, at least in Stalinism, it was more a problem of social struggle. You know, no, here there was no ideological uh, uh, counter-revolutionary activity. It's simply medical. Now, you will say, but this is past. What am I talking about? Why am I talking about it? It's maybe true for stupid, I'm mocking it, this is not my position, stupid Chinese who are totalitarian, they're not for our societies. Now comes, probably you know them, I've written about it, the bad news. I find this is the, this is the reason why I'm opposed to this uh, new category introduced by American Psychological Association, I already talked about it here, you know, of toxic masculinity. The, the first danger I see is that it's probably, uh, of course, there is something like poisonous, aggressive, toxic, masculine violence, and so on, but my God, it's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not a medical category. It's a category of ideological struggle, patriarchy, and so on and so on. And you know, when American Psychological Association does it, it means it's billions of dollars are at stake. Because when the category is introduced, then you can develop drugs to treat it. They are already working on it, and so on and so on. But what worries me more is this. Quote, how... Uh, American Psychological Association defines toxic masculinity. Traits of so-called traditional masculinity, like suppressing emotions and masking distress, often start early in life and have been linked to less willingness, 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 willingness by boys and men to seek help, more risk-taking and aggression, possibly harming themselves and those with whom they interact. Uh, 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 that's the quote, the definition. My comment. You cannot miss the mixture of ideology and expertise in this definition. 
A strong ideological gesture of excluding phenomena considered unacceptable is presented as a neutral description of a medical, uh, of a medical fact. Uh, so uh, uh, that's my first problem. But my second problem, and that's how I would counterattack it, not just yet it's ideological, but still it's male uh, pathology and so on, I'm tempted to say, and I know already briefly mentioned this here, I'm tempted to say, and with my colleague Alenka Zupancic, it was a magical moment. Uh, she called me and I didn't allow her to speak. I presented to her this idea and she was furious because at the same point she came to this idea because she took this definition seriously, you know. You don't share your emotions, you just act crazily in danger for yourself. And she engaged, and me, I also did, we came to the same example in, let's try to imagine, first in literature, examples of this. And the first that came to our mind is Antigona. She's pure toxic masculinity. She's in deep shit, shit in the sense that she wants to bury her brother, blah, 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 but she doesn't want to share her thoughts with others, no dialogue and so on. She insists on her and so on and so on. She is simply a courageous person. There are moments when, my God, you have to act like this. Then me and Alenka Zupancic, maybe we in Slovenia are a pathological country, but we asked, looked around and asked people, it's not a representative sample of sociology, but... We said people to whom you associate this type of, you know, you are in trouble, you have to make a tough decision, and most of the examples they came up were women. That, so I, I think that, that what is behind this disqualification of toxic masculinity is a certain subtle elevation of false femininity, which is pure ideological category. Today, we don't like radical disruptive acts. You must debate, you must coordinate, and so on and so on. And women are celebrated as those who are more dialogic, holistic, and so on and so on. So, I, uh, didn't I, did I already tell you? I'm not sure that... Aleka Zubantrit even found another example, wonderful one, where some reactionary psychologist claimed only men can do this, what is toxic masculinity, you know you are right, you disregard the loss, you just do what is right even if it hurts you, while women are much more conscientious, they don't care about ultimate justification, they just follow the law and so on. So Alenka Zupancic's point was, so now we know, Antigone was a man and Adolf Eichmann was a woman. <laughs> because Adolf Eichmann did exactly this. Her, his, not her, sorry, his defense was, sorry, I was just uh, executing orders and I didn't know, I organized train transports to Auschwitz, what do I know what was in those trains and so on. You know, so... Uh, uh, why am I mentioning this? For two reasons. First, that be very careful when today 
femininity is celebrated. So-called feminine qualities. Be very careful what type of social normativity is projected into it. Social normativity which is not really about women, but women are brutally misused her to, to promote a certain ethics of conformism and so on and so on. You know whom they are promoting, basically? Back to Antigone. They are promoting Ismene, her sister. She is the soft one, don't provoke, and so on and so on. But for me, now, I'm not saying who cares about... I'm not talking now about an essential femininity and so on. But there are nonetheless certain ideological configurations which define how we perceive femininity, masculinity. But my temptation would be this one, to say femininity is not simply more understanding and so on. That masculinity and femininity in our historical tradition are defined by a certain duality tension. Because this tension is different already at the level of most stupid superficial prejudices. Uh, you, did you notice how this is Masonic ideology? But it's typical how it's already attention into its position. According to traditional Masonic ideology, men are at the same time, do you have these stupid proverbs, we in Slovenia have them, that women just talk, blah, blah, emptily, man is a man of his word. Men really mean it. So, again, men are more stable, women are blah, blah, flirting, lying, whatever. But at the same time, this cliché is supplemented by the opposite one, which is women are more stable for home, order. And this is, again, where I, but we didn't have time to go it, where I had another question for Jonathan Peterson. His point is... Uh, uh, man is order, women are disorder. Even at the level of cliches, this is not true. It is true only in this male chauvinist sense, that uh, uh, men are order in the sense of participating in male chauvinist view in public order and so on. Women are unreliable, blah, blah, flirting, you cannot trust them. But at the same time, Women stand for family stability, taking care of. Men are the adventurers. Like this is big male chauvinist topic. Like I already quoted it, or you find the chapter which I quite like of myself, one of the few, on Schiller, the bells, the bell song, the most disgusting proto-fascist song, which describes normal order, women stay at home, Man goes around, adventurer, brings the wealth home, women take care of it, and then his explanation of the French Revolution, women also went out. Strictly, women are guilty for revolutionary terror and so on and so on. But what is correct in this view, which is disgusting, is that it at least locates in both Identities, masculine and feminine, it doesn't define them by a certain feature, but by a certain te uh, tension. They both have a tension in themselves. Women are Ismena versus Antigona. Men, I will not go into it now, men have a different tension. Now, 
why this have, has such a meaning today? I think I already talked about it, so I'll be very brief here. Uh, oh, we have time, okay. Uh, uh, I like the girl. You can guess whom. Greta from Sweden. Mm. Mm. You know why? Because I'm so shocked how much that propaganda she got now. You know who really disappointed me? Angela Merkel. I thought she would be... She said the worst possible thing about a month ago. Typical paranoia. She said, this girl is just autistic, a little bit crazy. Who knows who is behind her? Probably Putin. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I mean, here, reading all this about Putin, I'm tempted, but don't be afraid, I will not to become... No, but what I'm saying is that if isn't this Greta pure case of toxic masculinity... Arrogant, I like her basic, I think her autism is a positive, it's not in spite of being autistic. She, no, it's because she is autistic. What does her autism mean? To put it in very simplistic terms. She doesn't buy this bullshit, usual, which is, yeah, we are in trouble, ecology, but then it begins. We shouldn't act too fast. We don't know it yet if it's serious. Of course, fuck it. We will never know it. We will know it for sure when it will be too late, you know. Or uh, this, uh, it's more complex and so on and so on. You know, to use, she's pure anti-fetishist. If we define fetishism as the subjem mecomem, I know very well, but she, Greta, knows very well that we, everyday ecologists, we, know very well science is, scientists are telling us. Even incidentally, uh, Jordan Peterson, he then admitted there that he is skeptical about certain aspects of global warming, but then he admitted, privately then he told me, that for example, what is happening in our oceans? Better not to think about it. So much plankton dying and so on, and how this will affect the entire change and so on. Uh, so, uh, so uh, uh, you know, her point is simply, bien. I know and fuck you with your but mecomem, but nonetheless, there is no nonetheless. That's her basic, very, and she, her point is not, we really know. Of course, we don't know many things, but for me, when those who doubt global warming say, but we don't know it for sure, I never got it. As if this means, oh, so we can rest a little bit more to see. No, this throws me in an even more panic. We don't know it. Maybe, you know, because there is a lot of fetishism here as work. Maybe this is something more fundamental, not simple ideology. But you know how we translate our anxiety into precise numbers, which are pure superstition, like we say, what is now usually 2% warming. If it's 2% or less, it's okay. If it's, um, we don't know. Maybe 1% degree, sorry, not percent. Celsius will already be a catastrophe. Maybe 3% we will survive it. But that doesn't make it easier. That's, make it, that, that's what makes it even worse. And here also, don't trust economists, not just because he is, I'm a dirty old guy, sexually attractive, that Alexandria... Ocasio, oh, ah, 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 you admit yeah. it, no, don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know when she proposed that green, green New Deal or what? Uh, I was 
so shocked all these economists claimed this is spending money, non-productive way, economic catastrophe. Are they crazy? If there is something to learn from the 20th century history is that non-productive spending of incredible amounts of money always worked. Look, Second World War. Read a good history of it. The crisis was not over in late uh, uh, 30s. America got out of crisis only through World War II, where they spent, in a way which was not immediately productive, arms, extraordinary amounts of money. And you know what economic miracle this was? Do you know that in '45, United States, even if you discount arms, if you take just ordinary consumerist objects, in '45 they produced more of them than ever. Uh, or take, unfortunate example, take Reagan, take Bush. They were printing and spending money for arms like crazy. And I'm saying I'm really becoming a kind of ecological militarist. Why not use ecology as an excuse for declaring new national emergency, spend incredible amounts of money, and I claim economically it would have worked. But okay. So let's go. Uh, uh, so, uh, so again, I am not uh, covering up problems here. Things are terribly uncertain. For example, did you already talk about this here? They have now some idea of uh, spraying our entire stratosphere with some aerosols. I don't know what to prevent uh, all those sun rays to hit the earth. Sounds nice, but. It's so unpredictable what other processes you can trigger. But again, I hate people who claim, oh, so better do nothing. No, one thing is sure. If we do nothing, we are doomed. And it's not only this. That's why, as I tried to hint in Toronto, that's why I remain a communist. And I got from nobody a good answer to this one. It's absolutely obvious. If you take just these three big problems, ecology, Digital control, the incredible amount of how we are controlled, how will we cope with it? One thing is clear. The worst thing to do is to leave it to private companies combined with state power. This is now happening in China, in the United States, here. And obviously something has to be done here. And I add, of course, worldwide class struggle, uh, economy, and so on. I mean, it's... Uh, again, I oppose both standard versions. One is walls. There is a mess in the third world, so let's build walls. My problem is... Uh, but it will not work, first, because we cannot isolate ourselves. We are so economically uh, interdependent. And point two, but... All the examples that we know of third world troubles, we are co-responsible for them. Now, refugees from the uh, from, uh, Middle East, it's absolutely clear that without the mess in Syria, which has almost nothing to do with Syria, and this is what makes me... But with what? Did you notice these are small signs of catastrophe, that now two weeks ago when the American Congress wanted to stop American support for Saudi Arabia, 
role in Yemen, Trump vetoed it. This is, are we aware what is happening now in Yemen? The whole nation is destroyed. Tens of thousands of children dying, and then we wonder where do refugees come from. So, walls don't work, but I also, not that I don't sympathize with them, I don't believe this liberal left version, open our borders, and so on and so on. Yes, much more. But the point is to, even if you think it's utopian, it's the only solution to change international relations so that our politics at the global level will no longer produce refugees there. Like, I spoke recently again with a guy from Congo. He was doing some, I met him in Toronto, of all jokes, uh, waiting as a waiter. And in this patronizing way, he caught me in my white racism. I asked him, okay, uh, ah, you came from Congo, how did you come here, what? You know, it was already this white patronizing, oh, so nice, even a primitive guy like you, you found a job here. And he gave me a lesson. He said, yes, as a Congolese, I am a doctor in computer sciences. <laughs> in France, I was educated. But you don't, and then he told me something so sad. He told me that... The chaos of Congo, state in ruin, warlord rule, is directly linked to the fact of how Western companies deal with local wall roads about coltan and all those minerals. He told me something so sad. He told me, if, you, if some god would recreate Congo by taking away from Congo all the mineral wealth, for the people of Congo it would have been much better. Isn't this sad? I mean, you know. So again, uh, that's what we are. Or when I was in Korea preaching them the same thing. They, Korea, like play, oh, we are small victims, what do you know? I asked them, how much fertile earth did you acquire recently in Africa? You know, that immense amount of the best earth there. In the poorest countries, even Somalia, Ethiopia, uh, 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 Mozambique, Madagascar. And this is a catastrophe for the local population and so on and so on. But okay, we did uh, this. So uh, 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 now I want to go, if you allow me a little bit more time, into nonetheless a little bit of theory. First, an, uh, uh, yes, how this is my basic point. Here I remain a classical, almost Maoist Marxist. When you want to define a category, like femininity today, don't look at clichés, even if you deal with clichés. Look at the antagonism, the tension. Woman is not just this. Woman is, even in ideological identity today, a certain categorization of, a certain opposition of passivity, activity, the way men are, and so on and so on. And, and I think it's crucial to deal with these antagonistic characters. Also, for example, the more in, for example, what goes on today, LGBT+. The more I learn about them, the more I am for them. When you are dealing with real problems, it's tremendous, and so on, and so on. But we shouldn't, again, escape for problems. We, psychoanalysts, I think, 
can even provide intelligent solutions then. For example, a male chauvinist, and I like intelligent male chauvinists, from whom if they are intelligent conservatives, they draw out some paradoxes, you know, and it's interesting, stimulating to analyze these paradoxes. Because, For example, I think I already even mentioned it here. Did you hear about uh, uh, this obvious paradox? And it's very complex, difficult to give a good answer. If you use the N-word, N for black people, or uh, whatever dirty words, it's absolutely prohibited in our public space. With one big exception. You know which one? Red lyrics. There you can end, screw, fuck up, your mother, kill, tortured. Friends of mine were shocked. In, this was in Vermont country where I was uh, before, Burlington, Vermont. They told me there was recently a scandal. My friend, Todd McGowan, took children to a public ball, everything politically correct, then all of a sudden he couldn't believe the words from. Now, I think it's too easy to squeeze out in this politically correct way by saying, yes, but this is authentic black protest and so on, you know. It's not as simple as that, because apparently it is respect, you know, they really suffer, they should be allowed, but really it's white patronizing arrogance. You treat them as spoiled children who do not have our ability of our ethical standards, so they must be pardoned, and so on. And my black friends immediately accepted. Another problem of this antagonism exception, uh, it's a very simple observation made by a conservative guy, but he hit something, and I challenge you, I think I found an answer there. I mean, how to resolve it. They noticed this tension that... If you speak with these transgender theorists, no? In practice, what they do in kindergartens, I learned, and so on. If you are a boy, a man, who identifies himself as a man, all this machinery bombards you, but you must be aware that this is not a natural determination. You know, being a man is a symbolic, contingent, historical construct. Oh, you are bombed by this message, it's contingent, historical, and so on. If you are a man who identifies herself as a woman, that uh, biological, at least what we perceive as biological sex and symbolic social identity, then... Of course, they wouldn't admit it that it's determinism. But they then treat it as a mega emergency, you know. Oh, we must take care of, you must, all of a sudden, your inner feminine self, if you are biologically more a boy, becomes, although they wouldn't use the term natural, but becomes simply a kind of a firm fact. And yes, even I was told by my friend that, for example, in kindergartens, at least when a friend of mine, rather his girlfriend, worked in Norway, they have strict instructions. You must observe young boys when they play, and the moment you see any sign that he likes to play more with girls or with dolls, oh, you must uh, support this, uh, you know, like, uh, and so on. Uh, but nonetheless, you, uh, how would I... Now, what's my solution here? Ah, you must know it. I was repeating this all the time. This is, you see, the big mistake for me 
of this, I call it, uh, too playful LGBT+. Yes, our sexual identity is contingent in the sense of it's not biologically predetermined, it relies on symbolic facts, and so on and so on. But if a decision is free, free in the sense of you are responsible for it, not biologically predetermined, it can still be an extremely strong decision that you experience as fate. And here, again, as I developed many times here, Freud and Lacan follow this lesson of Kant, Schelling, and so on, where they claim that the truly free decisions are unconscious decisions, which are experienced as fate, like, I repeat myself, I was often using this example here, falling in love. Of course, it's a free decision in some sense. sense. But uh, as a free decision, you never decide. All of a sudden, it's absolute fate for you, if it's authentic love. Or, did I already mention this to you? Although at some point, I admit it self-critically, I had problems with India, but this is a standard joke from my Indian friends. They told me, oh, you are the most beloved India Indiaphobic guy, no? But something so beautiful happened there. Did you read it? It was in our media, just those small news eccentric which are worth following. A guy there, my God, a true speculative Hegelian Indian, sued his parents that they gave birth to him without his consent. Yeah. He was right, in a sense. Our, uh, that's the freedom also of sexual identity and so on. You don't choose it consciously. It's not that, you know, that's an illusion that a small boy or girl or ex eat. At a certain point, he asks himself or she or it, oh my God, what should I choose? No, that moment never arrives. But it's nonetheless the season you are totally responsible for it. And that's where I would correct this usual pseudo, she's not so stupid, pseudo Judith Butler playful LGBT identity. Oh, I play, today I'm gay, tomorrow I'm hetero, then I'm asexual, and so on and so on. You know, this basic decision is your decision, but it, it defines yourself. You know, you are not out and then, oh, I'm this, I'm that. So, uh, again, that would have been... This is, again, another example of what I hope I will uh, convince them LGBT, my friends, of where psychoanalysis, it's not just some binary bullshit which uh, spoils their game. It can give a new boost to them, you know. Precisely, can you imagine all the suffering of, let's say, a boy who wants to become a girl? And it's not just, did you see that movie? I don't want to repeat my story, but I know I already mentioned it. Uh, the Girl, Lucas Dawn, from 2018, a Belgian movie. They already mentioned it here. It's a wonderful example. It's a movie about a, a boy, biologically, who wants to become not only a girl, but a ballerina. And all her environs are totally supportive of her. Father tells her, you are realized yourself, be what you truly want, all the colleagues, but nonetheless, she suffers a lot. 
And it's incredible how this is based on a true story. And although the girl on whose story this movie is based said the movie faithfully reproduced my traumas, this, the fact that you cannot attribute the problems in which the girl, boy, becoming girl, finds herself to the male oppression, because on the contrary, the entire surrounding is extremely supportive of her. Of course, many of these uh, uh, standard LGBT ideologies exploded. It's secretly male chauvinist movie. It disturbed them. They even claimed that he, this painful depicting of her troubles is a kind of a male chauvinist, say this pornography, and so on and so on. No, my God, you know, there is nothing male chauvinist in the fact that precisely these transgender things, these are serious things, these are not playful games, my God. It hurts. It hurts. So, again, here we should... Okay, now, the last point, if you allow me, I will not finish it today, but I like this topic. Uh, uh, you can find... Uh, uh, you can, I will here refer to two texts. One, I would especially advise you to read it. You can get it. My colleague who wrote already three books criticizing me, we are still French, American, Lacanian, Hegelian, Adrian Johnston. But he did now something which is very good. In, you know that journal edited by my friend, uh, Agon Hamza and Frank Ruda, crisis and critique. It's a triumph. You know, one German unemployed he was, one guy from Kosovo, Albanian, started a leftist Marxist digital journal, which now tens of thousands downloads it gets immediately. There, in the last issue of Lacan, Adrian Johnston publishes, published a text, downloaded it, very good, called Lacan's Endgame. Philosophy, Science, and Religion in the Final Seminars of Jacques Lacan. And he does something which I was suspecting a lot of times, but I wasn't uh, sure about it, how to put it. You know that all the late Lacan is uh, obsessed by this idea First, Lacan dismissed imaginary, then even symbolic as another domain of fiction, semblance, and this idea, although it's never so simple with Lacan, but basically getting at the pure real. Even, unfortunately, Miller, in his last text, goes into this, that with today's capitalism, reality itself is a chaotic, real, no longer symbolic law, sexuality. Miller, in a way that I don't agree, got into this how even Lacan's formulas of sexuation are still symbolic fictions. Even matems should be dismissed. It's just pure, lawless, chaotic, real, and so on and so on. But uh, Adrian Johnston notes something. In his seminars of 87, 88, the last ones, it's really tragic reading. They're very short, if you read them. Lacan, in some sense, breaks down. He makes a, he claims that, uh, and it's not the same as the Borromean knot, that uh, our striving to arrive at some pure, real, true mathematical formulas and so on 
always fails, the domain of symbolic fictions and of imaginary traps is irreducible to our existence, and that the ultimate reality, I simplify it now very much, but you find all the quotes in this text by Adrian Johnston, that the... that all that we can arrive at is in a resigned gesture, we should declare, as it were, our failure. We are caught in fictions, and these fictions even have consequences in the real. And, you know, Adrian Johnston located something wonderful here. He noticed something very surprising, that in the very last two, three years, Lacan all of a sudden starts to refer, he liked provocatively to mention before, dialectical materialism. Now it's all of a sudden historical materialism, no? And the point is that, a rather naive one, that in the same way that for Marx, uh, ideological illusions, fictions, are not just up in the air. They form, they form our reality itself. Our social reality can only reproduce itself through symbolic fictions. And uh, 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 Johnston's point is that that's why Lacan all of a sudden refers to historical materialism. In the same way as for Marx, you cannot study pure real of capitalism. You have to include fetishism and all other ideologies. This is why for Lacan... uh, 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 the final formula, here it assumes its meaning of uh, psychoanalysis, it's no longer traversing the fantasy because this would still have meant reaching, arriving at some point of pure experience of the real, but uh, identification with the system. We are, sorry, well, politically it's problematic. I give you the right to have me police waiting for me. Let's have a chat. What did you mean by that identification with the system? No. Identification with the symptom. We cannot get... And Lacan even writes symptoms, not symptoms, that not of the real. That we have to accept that we are caught in this game of, what you call the undersichting, impenetrable meanings and so on. We have to uh, accept it. Uh, I find, I will try, if you allow me to conclude with this and then some time for the bit, I find this conclusion problematic, if you ask me. Because I will try to, because this topic, now I come to something that I can tell you without shame. It's a theoretical point. Adrian Johnston very intelligently links this problem of impossibility to arrive at the pure real, Adrian Johnston notices how this model of arriving at the pure real is still caught in the trap of the transgressive mode. This is why Lacan already in the next seminar, Desire and Disinterpretation, immediately abandons the logic of his reading of Antigone. In Antigone, traversing the fantasy is this, you know, momentary transgression. You pass through fantasies, you confront the real, but you cannot remain there. You have to fall back into the game. But the sad thing is that the last Lacan returns to this. So, uh, uh, in what sense? Uh, You know, I 
And I'm mad at myself that I didn't get this. Uh, you know that the late Lacan, very late, often uses this term, uh, 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 to, uh, to, uh, to make use of fictions. He said, we are materialists, but we should uh, make use of God, make use of the big other, make use of name of the uh, father, make use of, and so on. And now, here comes the moment when I'm furious at Johnston, because he's good. Furious because I didn't get, and he got it, this wonderful link. You remember the line I often repeated here, this Lacan's wonderful formula, uh, uh, if God is dead, then nothing is permitted. And Johnston's idea is that Lacan confronted this paradox. If nothing is permitted, then no God kills our desire. Then it's a terrifying universe of total sabotage. So that the idea is, if you want to sustain your desire, you need something like the big other God, which you know it's a fiction, but you need it as a fiction to transgress it, to violate it again and again, and so on and so on. And uh, uh, so, again, what I don't like is this uh, almost cynical version of Lacan. And I remember when I was sp still on speaking terms with Miller, this was in 2000, I think. We had a friendly debate in Los Angeles, I think, on this, where he even quoted Rorty. He went into this, that I, me, Grzeg, that I'm too purist for him, and we must have this playful attitude, playing with fictions, and so on, and so on. Yeah, but what I don't like is this cynical implication. We know that it's a fiction, but since in, uh, persisting in this, Atheist truth would kill our desire, so to sustain our desire, we, would, uh, we should return from the blinding gaze of the real back into symbolic fictions and play games there. Just So then, I will ask you, sorry for vulgarity, fuck you, what did then we learn in psychoanalysis? The point is, we learn that it's nonetheless a fiction, so that you don't play it too seriously but with ironic distance. That's, for me, a catastrophe. That's, for me, how ideology functions today. Play the game, but don't take it seriously. Play the soul. That's why uh, all big managers today, from Elon Musk to Bill Gates, are Buddhists, you know. You play the game, but when you play the market game, you can, you can, you can cause the catastrophe for thousands, but it's just a fiction. Don't take it too seriously. <laughs> I think that... Uh, Lacan's mistake here is, now I will just quickly conclude, but uh, I hope you will get my point, because I'm often reproached by clinical Lacanians for the idea that uh, I'm too much a philosopher, no? that I don't know clinics and so on, but I think that this conclusion of Lacan, make use of, play. It's precisely a proof that luck, now me, 
ach, Philosopher, strike back. That Lacan was not enough a philosopher. He got caught into this cynical deadlock because he didn't think to the end philosophical consequences, which are what? Although Lacan knew, that's my suspicion, we may debate it, some of you may know more. Although Lacan knew very well, there is a wonderful formula in, uh, in uh, Encore seminar that uh, le réel est un impasse de, de la, for, uh, the real is a deadlock of symbolization, which I think should be taken literally. It doesn't mean there is outside some chaotic real and we cannot grasp it through symbolic fictions, it resists. No, no, no. The, the self-sabotaging is absolutely immanent. There is no real outside the symbolic. Real is just the necessary deadlock of symbolization itself. And to give you a kind of a forelust, foreplay for tomorrow, I will try, I got this from Etienne Balibar, in a text published in another volume on Marxism, no capital ideas and so on, I will give you reference one. Bolivar came to a wonderful notion of absolute total subsumption under capital, claiming that till now subsumption under capital was just, you know, there are no spheres of production outside, but now in the last decades something much more radical is happening with this uh, self-education, investment in education, healthcare forming, that it's not only that all work is work for the capital, but that the very formation, education of the workforce is itself a field of capital investment. It gets kind of uh, redoubled and, uh, uh, okay, this, let's leave this for tomorrow, because Balibar, I think, here, in a wonderful text, makes a fatal mistake. Because he even mentions Lacan, the logic of non-all, but uses it in a traditional sense, like, this means something resists. No, 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 I think the way to undermine capital is precisely when even the production of the workforce becomes capital investment, then capitalist reproduction gets caught in a certain antagonist deadlock. And that this way is much more productive than this search of uh, there is some Brazilian tribe, Oscar or French once went, you remember, to this deviation. There is some in northern Amazon, some tribe which resist capitalism. They have a formula there. No, I think that look for imminent antagonism. But let's go on. So in spite of Lacan knowing this, Again and again, Lacan and Miller, when he wrote the text, the real of 21st century or whatever, is still obsessed with this idea, although theoretically he knows it's not true, as if there is some pure chaotic real outside symbolization, outside symbolic fictions, and uh, that we have to, uh, we have to open a, uh, uh, so ourselves to it. How? That's my problem. There are a couple of solutions here. First is the impossible one. That, 
Although we know we are always caught in symbolic fictions, we should nonetheless strive, even if it's impossible, to aim at the pure real, get rid of symbolic illusions, and so on and so on. Second one is the, uh, 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 is the postmodern one. Yes, we cannot get out because there is no real, all that is are symbolic fictions. And we should just, this the postmodern version, playfully enjoy them and so on and so on. The third version would have been this, I call it cynical, manipulative. We cannot get out of fictions, but we should accept it that they are just fictions and uh, knowing that they are just fictions, play with them and so on and so on. Uh, uh, I think that I believe in the fourth version, which also solves that problem of if there is no God, nothing is... uh, Nothing is uh, per- permitted, and so on and so on. If you just persist to the end in this absolutely immanent status of the real, the real is not some obstacle outside. The real is so that to touch the real, but the real in its traumatic dimension, and so on and so on. You don't have to move outside the symbolic. You just have to bring the symbolic to its own self-sabotage, inconsistency, then I think you have a way to confront, a way to break out of this, of this, uh, of this, uh, cynical, of this cynical conclusion, which again bothers me in its political consequences, and Miller unfortunately draws them, no? which is, we should accept the game of parliamentary politics, we just should be aware that this is the domain of illusory identifications and like play the game but be aware that it's not a totally serious game. The problem for me, the problem for me is that uh, uh, again, what if the real relations are inverted? What if your distance towards the game is the ultimate illusion? It's precisely the way you play the game in the most efficient way. That's why, as many, I call them ironically, Western Buddhists are aware of it, no? How uh, Western Buddhism is the most efficient way to function in today's crazy capitalism. Because it's so crazy with all speculations on futures and so on and so on, that... The only way to survive is to tell yourself, never forget, it's just a game of appearances and so on and so on. Uh, uh, You survive it and so on, you know. I was a little bit confused, I'm sorry. So tomorrow you get uh, this Balibar and I will really, you know what will be my focus? This big problem and I will try to address it in a very consistent way, which means not simplifying, jumping too much, the title is, I think, Nomadic Proletarials. No thanks. Sorry? And it says no thanks. No, Nomadic. absolutely no thanks. Listen. No I thanks. Was, uh, yeah, no <laughs> thanks, you said. That's no. what you say in your title. You said Nomadic Proletarians, question mark, no thanks. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, because, you know, this is my implicit polemic no with thanks. Alain Badiou. I deeply respect him, but I don't buy his version. I think it's part of what I call... West European, uh, how should I call it, uh, outsourcing on, of revolution, you know. We arrogant Western Marxists 
we like to imagine a proletarian revolutions and we don't get the subject. And now they got it, oh my God, what if we will outsource it to, to immigrants, you know? We finally found the proper proletarian subject. And my point will not be against immigrants, but more against this, maybe we should also redefine the proletarian position. And I will play with this. Although proletarians are nothing, but determinate nothing, nothing the zero point of the existing order. And immigrants are precisely less than nothing in this structural sense. They cannot even be located as the zero point in our society. You know who was a good surprise here for me? He now moved to the left. You remember we were criticized a couple of times for bringing him, him, him here, Jean-Claude Milner. He now has a very good text on immigrants, which is surprisingly pro, pro, surprisingly pro-immigrant. And he goes in a very materialist way on how, in what sense, they cannot be located, how desperately we try to locate them, all the hypocritical strategies that we use, segregation and so on. Jordan Peterson would so, be the next one. <laughs> he would be writing pro-immigrant. It's nice to know you, Thanks maybe, you. May, maybe, maybe in next... Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I so we still have five minutes or what, if you have some... Uh, please, some question. Why this not? One there. This is me, you stole this from me. It yeah, was yeah. making too much noise, it was annoying me. <laughs> yes. Uh. Please. Hi, thank you very much for your master class. I have the following question. Um, going back to the late Lagan's cynicism, yeah. Adam Hillel, But He wouldn't use the term cynicism, that's my reading. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Where the real has this noemonal, noemonal kind of yeah. transcendental yeah. status, right? Yeah. What do you think, what is your take on contemporary, quote, accelerationism, which sustains something in the same vein, which I would read personally as Christian eschatology, but secular version through metaphysics, particularly mm. Deleuze, or Deleuze, but um, which somehow still retains the cynicism, right? The day after yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. Many accelerationists have this cynical approach. Let's push it to the end, because we know that at the end it will... But, no, no, I agree with you. You know which point of accelerationism? Nonetheless, I accept. This idea that accelerationism can be a good medicine against this, how should I call it, resistentialism. Global capitalism, then you look for some local sites of resistance, as if the solution is to locate places which still resist capitalism. You know, it can be culture, subcultures, or whatever. In this sense only, I'm for accelerationism, like uh, it will be inner antagonisms that will break the system, not, not Latino American or African tribes which have some holistic wisdom or whatever, you know. But you know... Uh, uh, but uh, nonetheless, for me today, it's almost greater danger because as far as I know, accelerationism, I don't know how efficient it is as a political force. Well, this resistentialism, how should I call it, has a certain power in Latin America, in Africa, and so on and so on. 
And I, for me, always, beginning with in South Africa, I remember as a young boy, I was following there all the strikes and how, again, my oft-repeated motive, African National Congress never fell into this trap. We must retain our African identity and so on. King Butelezi, who was literally paid for in the service of apartheid forces, he played this game. Our African identity and so on and so on. You know, so uh, this, all this holistic, we, sorry, I talk too much. Okay. We'll do it, girl. Okay. Um, I think I recently heard Etienne in relation to this question of no inside. Everything's yeah. inside, there's no outside. Yeah. Um, his way of thinking it was a topological one where you twist the inside, which is what Lacan does. You twist the inside yeah. to produce an outside. And the, the proletariat is traditionally that outside, the extremity. Yeah. It's intimate to the inside, but exterior at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. I'm thinking of Raji's event would be exactly that as well. It's a supplement of excess in the state of the situation. Yeah. It's a twist of the topology that allows a supplement of excess within a state of the situation. If you account for it, you move from the bad infinity to a transitive yeah. infinity. And yeah. that's the act. Yeah. That's an act. But I just want to say one other thing, because you mentioned you put... No, Cre- uh, Antigone and, and as many. Yeah. I would say it's Oedipus and Creon. You said you hadn't come up with the masculine pair. Yeah, yeah. And I would say Oedipus and Creon. Uh, this is wonderful what you said, but take have a counterpoint. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, please, please, for, sorry, sorry. I, mean, sorry, yes. I think that this idea that Antigone is transgressive is, I think, a profound misunderstanding. Because in the ethics, Lacan asks, is, uh, what's the state of Antigone's act? Um, of bearing polymyces, yeah. and it's bearing of atti, transgenerational contamination, yeah. which separates whether whatever he might have done in yeah. his history from the fact that he's the bearer of the sign. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so there's the stake of Antigone's act. He says, is it a, the jouissance of transgression? He says, no. Is it the jouissance of destruction? No. Is it the jouissance of uh, defiance? No. So what is it? Well, it's something else. It might be on the side of self-knowledge. So he just, you know, Lacan actually says in the ethics seminar very clearly, and I can't see that this can be improved on in anything else that he said in the later work, that it's not the jouissance of transgression, because the content of the act. She may transgress a limit. She may defy the the state. She may uh, just be, it may produce all kinds of destructions in its way. But it's not the content of the act. It's not defiance, destruction, or disobedience. It's the, it, she wants to bury Atty. She wants to, you know, it's the limit of the second death. She's actually preparing <coughs> a transgenerational contamination, and I think that's the state of psychoanalysis. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, it's yeah, that destruction, yeah. creation, ex nihilo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you following what yeah, I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know what's my problem here? I see what you're saying, and I would make in this direction even a step further. That, uh, uh, as you already hinted at, in her act, Antigone insists also on the signifier, like Polynacos' death becomes a pure name, and as such, discon- disconnected from the content of his acts. So that I agree with you that uh, for him, burying Polynacos does... Uh, 
means his reduction to the re, sorry reduction to the pure signifier. So it's not real, some mystical real beyond. It's pure signifier. But I think I admit totally that it gets immediately more complex. I think that this is the reason why Lacan immediately, as I often repeat, in the ne next year in his desire and its interpretation, went to Signor de Cuffontaine, which is his anti-Antigone. And this is why, in this sense of reducing to a poor signifier, uh, 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 Antigone is a model of desire when he says pure desire. But you know when, I often mention this, when in the last page of Seminar 11, Lacan says the desire of the analyst is not a pure desire. I think this is a criticism of this model. But nonetheless, I think that things, I see your point, of course, that uh, things get more complex here. Because what about all the mention of uh, death drive, to die, and so on, and so on. I, I don't think that it can be reduced to this symbolic dimension, but, but something else I want to tell you. When you mentioned uh, Oedipus, another duality now fascinates me. Oedipus versus Oedipus at Colonus. Mm. Oedipus at Colonus is my hero. You know why? The stu utter stupidity of seeing in Oedipus at Colonus the ultimate figure of wisdom, he has seen it all, and so on. No, Oedipus, who survives his blinding, and so on. Oedipus at Colonus, it's uh, precisely the one who doesn't compromise his desire. Because, you know, typically, everybody, majority even of interpreters, refers to Oedipus at uh, these words, the greatest luck not having been born at all, as Oedipus' wisdom. No, read it, it's the stupid chorus who says this. Oedipus is way too aggressive. Oedipus' message is, I may be blind, half dead, but no, I want to hurt Tibes, I want my revenge, I don't make any compromise, and so on. She is precisely, if there is a figure of the, you know, Alenka Zupankic, she only, she only has it in Slovene, wrote a text now wonderful in Slovene on Oedipus at Colonus, where she says how already Lacan says something wonderful. Was it in Antigone somewhere else? He says that there is a deep truth in this death. We all have to go through Oedipal complex except Oedipus. Yeah. Oedipus is the one who... Da and she points how different... Things are, like, Oedipus is usually read as a tragic hero. Like, you do something which expresses, articulates your unconscious desire, and the tragic greatness is that although you experience it as fate, oh my God, it happened, I didn't know, but nonetheless, since your unconscious desire, you assume, no? So, as Hegel put it nicely, this tragic logic, that uh, the greatest humiliation for a hero, was that if you don't, if you don't uh, recognize his guilt, it's his honor to be guilty. To be guilty means that at a deeper level he is... Uh, but if you read closely Oedipus already, the king Oedipus, not actual honor, 
he absolutely, you never get this moment where he say, where Oedipus would say, oh, now I admit, he doesn't blind himself for seeing, the, he to the end rejects his res- responsibility. He said, I took by mistake that road, I killed my father, I didn't want that. He is not, he absolutely not that guy who at some deeper level followed his desire and so on and so on. He's never reconciled with with his guilt in the sense of I'm deeply responsible for it and so on. So in this sense, only at Colonus, he becomes true being of desire. He's my guy there. He's pure evil almost. You know what's his problem? His problem is he knows that the place where he will die will bring luck to the city. And it's the entire manipulation of how to sell his death expensively. Uh, the most expensive way, not only this, he manipulates like crazy. You know how he stages his dying, the whole spectacle and so on. Pure being of desire. I think he is my hero. And do you know, it's wonderful to read the story. You know what role did this game uh, play? Sophocles, last game. You know the irony we know from history. It's wonderful. Do you know that Oedipus was, Oedipus, sorry, Sophocles was very old, 90, which was incredible for ancient Greece. And his sons, or one, I don't know, were prosecuting him for money, want to proclaim him old, senile, crazy. And he wrote Oedipus at Colonus to prove that he is not stupid and old. So even the play was written, fuck you, I'm 90, but you will not get my money, you know. I love this total naivety. And this is so important not to project on Oedipus this figure of tragic wisdom. Or already, and I agree with you, already with Antigone, it's more complicated. Creon is the only figure of tragi- tragic in, in Antigone. Creon does something, then he discovers he kills his son, blah, blah. This moment of, how do you call it, when you recognize, my God, the external enemy is my own act. This is Creon. Antigone is not a tragic hero. Oedipus is not a tragic hero. Oedipus, I love him, now it's crazy. Oedipus' message, read in detail, when he has to admit that he killed his father, what he is saying, he's not saying, oh, my tragic fate, blah, blah, blah. He's saying, fuck you, I'm not guilty, I didn't want it, and Lacan emphatically uh, agrees with it, you know. No, no, I, I'm sorry, I don't have more time, but these are, it's so refreshing to return to classics and just see how different they are from what we expect. Again, it's automatically, everybody assumes that Oedipus said this deep wisdom, better to be, not to be born. No, that's the stupid chorus. Chorus is the site of stupidities, of common wisdoms. Cor- Sorry, yeah? Don't you think Tiresias is a very interesting figure? Tiresias. Yeah, but, a uh, but for this, yeah. We really need Lacan's table of situation to think the complexity of his sexuation. Yeah, this, uh, yeah. Is he male at all? Is he more feminine? He was He's more, more male than well, yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. Yeah, two, yeah. He sees two serpents. Yeah, yeah. And parted each other and he hits the ground yeah. and they turn him into yeah. But you know, but you know whom I love in Oedipus at Colonus? When Creon comes to Colonus, 
how he creon totally manipulates. First he says to who is the Tezeus, who is he the says. first he says to Tezeus, how can you receive this guy? He killed his he screwed his mother, he killed this disgusting Oedipus. Then he turns to Oedipus in the same speech and says, We admire you in Thebes, come to us to give like, total manipulation. So I have a certain sympathy for Creon. Uh, we did have two more questions. Or two no, we are seven minutes past. If so you will be here tomorrow, tomorrow, we can simply begin with. If, uh, sorry, will you be here tomorrow? Then please begin yeah, tomorrow. And Okay, okay. Uh, so we are, so now I will be disgusting, ironically. So yin, yang, male and female are balanced, you know. And I have a question, lots of questions. Fuck off, bitch. Uh, <laughs> All sexual, gender, binary positions are filled in. So please, uh, don't forget, you and you begin tomorrow. And then we go into that bullshit, you know. Yeah. Oh, no, we, no, but tomorrow, I warn you, it will be more uh, difficult a little bit.